I don't want to mischaracterize this, but it is not unusual in startups, which has turned out to be my life's work, that many, 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 many things are all breaking at once, and they tend to land on customer service. This episode is sponsored by Freighterra.com. Freighterra is building the low-efficient freight transport marketplace, linking B2B shippers to the most efficient carrier for each route in North America. Search and compare instant all-inclusive freight quotes and book shipments online 24-7 on Freighterra.com. That's F-R-E-I-G-H-T-E-R-A.com. Hi, I'm Dave Chappelle, and I'd like to welcome you to the Invent Like an Owner podcast, where I talk with the Amazonians who help build Amazon into one of the world's most valuable companies. This weekly podcast is for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and all students of history. The goal of the podcast is to capture Amazon creation stories and create a historical archive. And that's it. On that note, my guests are recalling history as best they can. It's possible some of the details are fuzzy or they're going to be wrong. Live with it. If that happens, it isn't intentional. I invite future guests or commenters on the website, of which there are plenty, to help us get the facts as straight as they can be. Now, on with the show. Today, I'm thrilled to be talking with Jane Slade and Colleen Byron, two of the original rock stars who helped the senior leaders help build the Amazon customer service organization, help build out the team, plan the software tools, which have scaled Amazon to manage hundreds of thousands of professional customer service employees around the world. And Jane started in 96, Colleen started in 1997. And so they're going to tell us how they help make incremental and step changes to manage the growth of Amazon customer service. I know they're going to have a bunch of interesting stories. In fact, I guarantee it because I listened to a podcast with Jane a few years ago that we'll be repeating some of, and I will link to it in the show notes. But anyway, welcome, Jane and Colleen. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. So let's just jump right in. Jane, you arrived in 1996. Tell us what Amazon customer service was like. Like, put it in perspective, because now everybody thinks of it as a million-plus employees. Were there a million employees when you got there? There were not a million. There's 20-something employees at that time in the whole company. There were mm-hmm. three people doing customer service. Three. And were you hired to be the manager, or were you just one of the customer service employees oh, at no. the time? At that point, <laughs> they hired us just to come to the company. Like, I didn't know what I was going to do. So they just figured, you can write you can speak, you're friendly, you're a generalist, customer service, and then we'll just grow people into whatever we need. So um, I did customer service to start out. Yeah. And what were the tools like? Was it, you know, <laughs> established software or were you sitting there with a, a computer console of answering the phone? Established like? software. No, it wasn't established <laughs> software. It was an X like terminal. Yeah. Like a dumb terminal mm-hmm. with a C prompt, just like one line C prompt. There was nothing graphic. They had to teach you the commands, and we just were at the command line. And were you all working out of one inbox? Like, was there an engineer assigned to help build this out and manage it? Like, what what was it like? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I have no idea if we were working. I'm sure there was one inbox. Yes, I'm sure there was. Right. And I I just think we were opening message by message. Yeah, and we would like we would lock out a section of them, and gra- we would be responsible for us. Or do we lock them out one at a time? I think one at a time. Yeah, I think it was one of the. T- oh, I'll get back to. I joined in '98, which was you know eons later than YouTube. But I do remember like you would sort of freeze the message, or was it called locking? You would lock the message when you went in to work on it, so yes. that nobody else would grab it. And so that was like that was the same back then, but even more primitive. Yeah, and I and it wasn't so strange because my email was still 
I was doing email at the speakeasy, like not even in my own home. I would go to an internet cafe and that was no graphical user interface either. So it wasn't that weird. Right. And so what would a typical customer interaction be like in 1996 with three customer service reps? Would it be, actually, I got a question from Jess Scheibach. She was an early program manager for customer service. She sent in a bunch of questions today. And she said, she was asking basically about memorizing command line and you know how long would that not scale? So like, what were those questions like and how would you deal with them with the tools you had? Honestly, in the beginning, the questions were, these were early adopters. So these were people comfortable with technology, probably more comfortable with technology than I was. And they were just very much like, I want to get this thing. What's it like? What's going on in the background? You know, it was very much, can I get this book? Can I get this book? You know, the questions they didn't expect very much. So they didn't have hard questions. Um, Sometimes I might run over to the warehouse and see if something shipped yet and maybe we could put two of them together or pull them apart. It was, we couldn't do very much. We had no visibility into the order process. We could really make sort of changes on the account, like address changes. The commands right, were simple right. because we actually couldn't do very much. Right. So what would, would lead somebody to go down to the warehouse versus making an intercompany email request or it just didn't exist? That wasn't a thing. There was no real-time communication in the company. We literally walked from one room through a hallway and down to the warehouse. There was no communication. So we would just find the order in a bin. I can't even remember how we found it in a bin, but I think the books weren't in bins for just for the order at that time. They were, I don't know, in alphabetical or numerical order. Something was like a library. We would just go and, and maybe try to stop an order if somebody wanted to try to cancel it. There was very little we could do. So it was mostly asking informational questions, quite honestly. How did people get trained? If it's command line and you're doing command line instructions, did you literally have a list of stuff on the wall? I'm asking these questions for perspective for a startup, you know, that's thinking about, hey, we're ready to launch and we don't, who's going to answer the, who's going to answer the questions and stuff? There wasn't even a piece of paper. Like I had to grab a notebook and write down, they had, they just told me what the commands were and they were increasing daily. They, They would try to think of something new to be able to do. Like anytime we would need to do something, we would say, hey, how would we do this? And they would go, whoa, good question. And they would write up a little script and then we would add it to our little notebook. And it was changing so fast that training was really just a side-by-side scenario. Yeah. And I know you laughed when I mentioned tech support or an engineer for customer service, but they had to have built something by the Christmas of 96 or definitely by Christmas of 97, right? (laughs) No. (laughs) All right. We'll get to that. So I wanted to ask, so do you remember Christmas of 96? Like I remembered Christmas of 98 and things were pretty bonkers then, you know, like that's when it had really, like, what was 96 like? Was it even worse because you were so small and then you had a huge pop or was it not that big? Christmas wasn't a big deal. As I recall, the first big deal was mid-May 1996. And that was the Wall Street Journal article on Jeff Bezos. Was it just a profile on him? Yes, but it was the first national press and Wall Street Journal was taken pretty seriously. And so it was the first time anybody ever took me seriously when it came to the job. And it was our first pop in orders. And it was our first flood of people who weren't early adopters. And then it was just very, very visible and more and more people. So it snowballed from there. That was was, the one I remember that was the first, whoa. And could you tell based on the types of questions, like, were these people asking 
how do I order a book on the internet or was it? These people are asking, uh, what was the internet? Yes. Like, what do I do? Or, um, and, and we kind of hid the telephone number, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. So it was mostly email, which was unheard of in customer service. Email customer service was not a thing. So it was funny for people to write to us. And once we started displaying the phone number, it was very much like, how do I, I, the page just ends and we would have to explain scrolling down a web page or, you know, things like people would call us and, and tell us to, you know, talk to not Google, but Yahoo, tell Hotmail, like as though the internet were an office building or a group, just not understanding at all what this was. Was it in that 96, 97 window where it started to switch more from phone to email. Did we start to remove the phone to get people? No, to, it was to, the opposite direction. It started out email really only. And uh -huh. then people started to complain that they couldn't find the phone number, if I'm not mistaken, yeah. Colleen. So the phone number became a little bit more prominent, but we still were trying to funnel people to email. When I first started, we had a chunky telephone with four lines, you know, line one, line two. It was... Again, we weren't really set up as a business taking phone calls until the Columbia building. And when was that? Right. It was March of 97, I think. I actually think I got there in 96 because I was there for the Wall Street Journal article. So you got to update your LinkedIn. I stole that off of LinkedIn. So anyway, well, that's good to know. We'll, we'll get there. So one question I had, because when I got there, I just remembered we would all work in customer service. Like we would all be there, whether it's working, planning launches, or we would, work, and we'll get to customer connection. But I just remember like all the customer service reps, or it seemed had advanced degrees, <laughs> like super smart book lovers. Was that the norm? Was that by design? Was, you know, how did that happen? So the recruiting that Jeff was doing pre anything was he really wanted people who were generalists, who were just raw, smart people. He was ask you for your test scores. He would, he wanted people who have followed a thread of something really, really far. So hence people with advanced degrees and he wanted people who could stick to something, had creative minds and just like raw smarts. And so that's sort of a general profile that they were hiring. It was kind of pre-MBA, pre-your wave, was just really yeah. raw people. He wanted people that he could just say, do this thing. And we honestly wouldn't question him because we didn't know enough to question him. So, and then they also expected people to come into customer service and fill out in other areas of the company. So there was just something funny about like advanced degrees being some proxy for, I can stick to a really hard brain exercise. How long did that person type? How soon did they get frustrated by the help me with the internet thing? Do you know what I mean? Like, I, like I, I think that's fun because you are helping people and it's rewarding. But like, was that a problem with people as they had to answer that question over and over and over? Or was it, you know, just fun because people were enthusiastic and discovering the internet? Not till a little later did that become boring, partially because everything was changing so fast. And you know, even when you were there, Amazon was adding products and areas that were always hard problems, always, always. And we were involved in solving the hard problems. It wasn't like customer service was, you know, not consulted. We were all together in a pig pile at Amazon. So everybody was at Amazon and involved in building. So it really wasn't until later when there were so many people that customer service were people were no longer involved in the building. But also by that time, it was sort of the tools became better. So it was this nice 
switch where the tools were easier and you could hire people who, you know, kind of just wanted to go home at night. Yeah. When you got past those first waves of questions about how does the internet work, what's the number one customer service problem? It might still be the same one. Was it, where's my order? Was it, you know, where's my stuff? Where's my stuff followed by cancel my stuff followed by, <laughs> yeah. uh, followed by I got somebody else's stuff. Yeah. <laughs> the switcheroo. The switcheroo. The switcheroo. <laughs> nice. So back to the surge, the Wall Street Journal surge. So that was an unplanned surge or pretty unplanned, right? Like you didn't know that was coming. I mean, you knew that there may have been a story coming, but you hadn't had a previous Wall Street Journal story. Like for the unplanned surge like that, what happened? Did people just work around the clock? Did you try to staff it? Did you all of, you know, all, cause you didn't have any more tools. The tools weren't coming anytime soon. So was it just an around the clock exercise to keep up? Yes. There were, there were six people in customer service. I think there were six people in customer service, five, when I started. Uh -huh. And when the Wall Street Journal article, we were greatly hampered by the fact that I was in the queue answering emails and I was rubbish at it. But that was sort of the first time the light went off. And so I said, we got to get a pipeline full of people because this is going to take off. I knew it so, was. So Colleen, what did you do before? Because you, you were the first person hired to lead customer service. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so where did you come from? Did you do customer service before? Were you the first person that had traditional customer service experience? Probably. I probably was. I don't know. I didn't look at their resumes. We all just right. hit ground running with our hair on fire. Uh, I bef Immediately before Amazon, I was five years with a consulting practice in the area of product support, technical support, and customer service, working with technology companies. And so I would often report, almost always reported to the CFO of whatever software company I was working with. And Jeff was interviewing for CFOs in that year and a half before we found Joy. And every time he interviewed a CFO, he said, who should I be talking to about customer service? And so it's just, it was just a weird confluence of events that he heard my name several times, you know? Right. So he got me in for an interview. And I, I remember that his, his assistant called me, Kim Christensen called me and said, you know, we'd like you to come in for an interview. And it's just an internet company. And I said, well, I'm, I'm happy to come in and talk to you, but I, I'm not interested in full-time employment, but I'd be happy to talk to you as a potential client. Right. <laughs> and, and Kim was like, <clears throat> well, we'll need a resume. And I said, well, I don't, I don't have a resume. And I, I right. mean, I can tell you a little bit, but you know, it's just, the whole thing was just, but then I met Jeff, I went in for the meeting and I met Jeff and it was like, this guy's going places. I'm in whatever right. it is. I'm in because this is happening. And so, so you were there earlier than I thought. So it was this pretty similar situation when you arrived, you arrived a little after Jane. So did you have a, were you hired with a list of things like no. that you, you had to do <laughs> or, you know? No. So before, before the five years of consulting, the, the last job I, big job I'd had was as director of customer service for a company that became Adobe. It was purchased by Adobe called Aldus and they had a program called PageMaker. So PageMaker. I'd been the sixth employee at Aldus and sort of ridden that up in the way it had been a sort of a darling of the industry story too, as Amazon became back before now. But anyway, so that was my experience. So I was, I seemed like a grown up and I was much older than everyone else, which also made me seem very grown up. I was older than Jeff and I still am. 
So yes, I was coming. And when I came in, there were five people sitting in a big room at X terms with command line prompts, you know, doing, and there was a Latinist and there was a Shakespearean, somebody with a PhD in Shakespeare, if that's possible, whatever it is, whatever Simon Leake's deal was. I know that he was a some sort of expert on Shakespearean English and Shakespearean plays. There was a very strange man in the corner completely geeking out with credit cards. He had something called CC Motel, which was credit cards went in, but they didn't come out. And there was some sort of horrible nightmare happening with him. There was a linguist. There was a Rhodes Scholar. And there was Jane. These were the people in the room. And Jeff said, customer service is over there. Have a good, and that's the last time I talked to the man for like three months. Yeah. And so was, was it quickly, I mean, you mentioned quickly you determined we need to build a pipeline, right? I briefly tried to become a customer service agent because I thought I should understand what these guys were doing, but I truly was not good at it. And also it was real clear around the time of the Wall Street Journal that somebody actually needed to pull their nose up and look at down the horizon and start planning for what this was going to be. So my job was to start putting the structure in place to be resilient enough to manage what I perceived was a tsunami of growth headed toward us. So clearly, Jane, all of these people became leaders, the people who were there when I got there. And some of them quickly went off onto other departments while Jane and I built a pipeline to bring in a whole bunch of, you know, we don't need to hire one person. We need to hire five or six. And then we started our provisional early template of a training program. And bear in mind, the people we were hiring were all, you know, they were these disaffected PhDs and master's program wannabes right. or dropouts, or they were these very, very, very bright people come work for us for $10 an hour in stock options, you know, right? what are stock options? I mean, it was not a good pitch. It was really hard to get them in the door, but we did. And then there was this laborious training process for working in Unix at a command line prompt and oh, by the way, don't leave any of the tools open because it'll bring the whole website down kind of thing. It was just, it was a bit mad. We needed people who could write. So that was part of it. Like at this point, we needed people who could write and communicate because most customer service was on the telephone and ours mostly email. And so people with good judgment who could write, who could handle technology, that's like a tall order for a temp. (laughs) And were you all working out of like, text blurb files that you copied from one to another? Like, how did you, eventually, did you even have, yeah, eventually. I mean, we had to build it up, but that, uh, but at the beginning there was, <laughs> I don't want to mischaracterize this, but it is not unusual in startups, which has turned out to be my life's work, that many, 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 many things are all breaking at once and they tend to land on customer service. So it took us a, to get to a certain place of volume where the piles of broken things could be sufficiently addressed with a blurb for that series of broken things. Until that point, there was a lot of writing on the fly. And there were some little paragraphs we could insert and sort of stitch blurbs together to address things that had layered problems in them. I think, Jane, you moved to training. But before I want to ask about that, but Colleen, who did you report into? And the reason I'm asking the question is, how tuned in were you on expected growth? Like, was the CEFO saying, hey, we're expecting to Christmas to 8x, so plan for that? Like, or like, how did you get that information? Well, I reported to Jeff, and again, it was it were only like 50 people in the company. It was a small group, maybe 60, I don't know. It, was, it wasn't very many people. But I reported to Jeff until Dalzell got there, until Rick Dalzell got there. 
And Rick was the CTO after Shell Caffin, who uh, Shell was employee number one or two, depending how you count it, the first CTO who built the website. And so that's Rick. I've been told to give uh, definitions of people we mentioned because we were dropping a lot of names on earlier episodes. Okay. So, Thank yeah. you. So Jeff and I had a, a just a very sort of Vulcan mind meld relationship. One of the things I've always loved about Jeff and one of the reasons we got along so well is that he was a great is a great respecter or at that time was a great respecter of intuition. And he actually looked for intuitive qualities in people that he hired in those early days. And I tend to have that in spades. So I could sort of read the play coming at me with Jeff most of the time. And I had my own instinct about what this was going to be. And my own instinct was that there was no time for sleep and that we had to just grow, 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 grow. Right. And so did you ask Jane to move over to training and... I think Jane was in training for like five minutes because Jane was in training until, you know, we, Margaret, I can't remember her name. She was fantastic at it. She did it Johnson, really well. Johnson. Margaret Johnson. God, she was good. We needed Jane and we needed five Janes. You know, we needed right. her in a bunch of different places at once. But my recollection is that you only did that while we were for a short time, right? Like four or five months, maybe three months. I did it up into the Columbia building. So it must have been six months or so. Yeah. Yeah. And so did you focus on temp agencies? Was it full-time hiring? Like, or was it a mix of everything? Was temp agencies a way to when help? I, when I got there, I, you know, I just, and I, again, the Wall Street Journal article thing, it was like, okay, we need more people. <laughs> like we're, right. we're getting behind. We need to be caught up. There's a wave coming at us. Let's run some ads and get some, and it became clear within three or four weeks that running ads and traditional recruiting processes were going to be completely inadequate to our needs and we needed to be hoovering up great clumps of people at a time. So I reached out to every temp agency in town and said, this is what I'm looking for. And I'm going to give you feedback. Every time you send me a batch of people, I'm going to tell you who didn't work and why they didn't work. And if you can't hit the caliber of people I need, you're not going to be doing this anymore. I made stuff up. I said, I'm going to be hiring 500 people in the next two years, which I turned out I undersold it. You know, you way right. undersold right. it. <laughs> yeah. But it got their attention. And those who partnered with us most ably just, and, you know, they got a little piece of that action. They, they stayed on the temp payroll for, I think, four weeks or something. And right. then we converted them to employees. So they made money on doing all of that recruiting for us. Got it. Dave, Seattle was a, an odd place, a perfect place for that at the time. There was a lot. It was the whole slacking thing. There were a right. lot of underemployed people, culturally underemployed on purpose in Seattle at that time. And hiring through temp agencies or just taking on a temp job for a while, that was a thing. So it wasn't, right. Right. that was a just a great we, we were in a great place for that. It was a perfect fit for what Amazon was looking for, types of people and their mentality. They enjoyed it, or it was a good fit. So I asked about technology a few times. So now we're, we're moving along a little bit. And at some point you did get resources or people assigned, or you, I'm sure you yelled, begged, borrowed, stealed, and you had resources. Like, tell me about the brute force versus the technology. <laughs> like, how did CS scale eventually? Oh, God, hysterical laughter. The first step was, first of all, there was no end of begging, bribery, bitching, you know, you know, standing on top of tables and trying to get it. And it was, there's, there's just no resources were coming to customer service. Get right. over it. Go away. Answer the emails and stop bothering us. It is not going to happen. You know, we have other things that are on more fire, hotter fire, greater risk than you guys. Suck it up, buttercup. 
So I started, I, I mean, I'm going to take all the credit for this, but I, you know, there were a lot of really smart people in there. And I started what I thought of in my own head as the disaffected PhD skunk works. And mm -hmm. I started uh, recruiting directly into the University of Washington, looking for people who were just that. They were unhappy with their graduate programs in math or computer science or physics in one case. I'll never forget, there was this incredible hire we made, a, a guy named Clark Grubb. God love him. I think he was a, at the time, he was a night manager in a hotel down by Seattle Airport. I hired Clark Grubb at JibJab after I left Amazon. I went, to, my friend founded the company JibJab, you know, This Land is Your yeah. Land video. And Clark joined us as an engineer from when he moved down to LA. Clark had a degree in physics. And he was just, he's a very humble, very modest guy. And so I was like, you. And the handful of guys, I think they were mostly guys, and stuck them in a corner and gave them books on Perl and SQL and said, I want you to do half time answering customer service emails. And the other half time, I want you to read these books and start writing Perl scripts. And that was how we started to get some automation in customer service. And meanwhile, you know, these guys are writing code and checking it in. Right to the main pile of untested, right. ungoverned, ungovernable, possibly code that was the Amazon website. Anyway, that was worked great because suddenly we had tools, suddenly we had ways of being more efficient, meeting our customer needs in a much, much, much faster and more efficient way, both at the mail handling level and at the tool operating on orders level. But the, you also had people building the tools who had experienced answering the questions. So that's, you that know, you right. said they did a couple yeah. of hours yeah. doing it. It's not just a, a, uh, you had to know what you had to do customer service first. And that was what was yeah. so hard. To, you can imagine trying to recruit these people for $10 an hour <laughs> and stock options. <laughs> and they didn't know what those were. <laughs> when you were there, was it all homegrown, home built? Did you try licensing any third party customer service software or was it all built internally? I met with many vendors. And in fact, some of them were people I socialized with in Seattle. And they would come in and little missy and explain what they could do for us. And we would explain the volume that where we were already, they would have their smile pasted on their face, and they could not handle the volume like the stuff that we had already built internally was so far beyond what they could do. They absolutely couldn't handle it. And we needed to move forward fast. So we made the decision that no one could help us at that time. That's not surprising, but I'll ask the next leading question because every department had some. Did we hire any customer service experts, you know, the consultants or that came in or is it all really was homegrown? I mean, that's a really good question, Dave. And it points to an, one of Amazon's key success factors, I believe, and that is the insistence on customer focus across the board. There was nobody in that company that owned customer service. We all owned customer service. And I've never to this day been involved with a company who there were so many people across the board who would ask the question, how does that affect the customer? Right. In all parts of the company, in the warehouse, in marketing meetings, in editorial meetings, everywhere, how does that affect the customer? So, you know, customer expertise is in the DNA of that company. I agree. Like I say it to people all the time. I mean, Amazon obviously has great customer service. Like I'm a fanboy. That's pretty obvious. But the bar has been lowered so low nowadays that just to have any company that provides good customer service is like unusual. You know what I mean? And great customer service is a rarity. 
At least I find like when I go to REI, I am in love with REI. Like the people they hire are knowledgeable. They're obviously into outdoors, but that's a rare exception, you know, versus other stores. And I feel that way about most of the people I worked with in Amazon, like everybody really cared and did what they could to either build things the right way or fix things, you know, or go the extra mile. So Dave, you said we, you wanted us to keep in mind people who are listening to this who might be growing companies or building companies. In those years when I was doing consulting, I'll never forget one of the CFOs who hired me said, the feeling around here is that customer service can't really help us, but it can hurt us. Right. And I thought, oh, this is going to be something <laughs> to overcome. My the reason that Jeff and I hit it off is that we had the same understanding or he got what I was preach selling about customer service, which is that you cannot possibly afford, no one can possibly afford to acquire any other way the information about their customers that is coming in the door free over the phone and through email. And if you're smart about that and if you regard every single customer contact, unless they're just calling you to say, I love you, which did happen at Amazon, unless they're calling to say, I love you, every single customer contact is a measure of a failure somewhere in the organization. Right. Something has gone wrong to cause my customer to have to reach out and ask me a question. It didn't go perfectly. Um, we did not achieve customer ecstasy, right? Yeah. So that's the approach you have to customer service so that all of those defects can be measured and delivered to the group responsible for the repair of that defect. Is it a problem on the web? In the case of Amazon, was it an editorial problem or a catalog problem or data that we had wrong from the publisher? You know, do we how far upstream do we have to go with that? Was it an engineering problem and so on? And so did the team of Clark Grubb and other Perl scripters, did they start logging the, you know, problem and tabulating like these are where my order problems, these like right. how when did we start doing that, Jane? It seems to me that was pretty I mean, we got it we had a gross map for it. It got enormously more discreet over time. So when we were sort of at the gross level, we could say sort of who was calling to cancel, who was calling for where's my stuff, that kind of stuff. And in fact, I remember it being in the Columbia building where we first started building customer service tools, I think. Self-service, sorry. Self-service on the website. I remember presenting the idea to Jeff that we prioritize those based on the most frequent contacts and here were they. Here were they. And what was the most frequent contact but... I want to cancel my order. And <laughs> I remember the resistance to being able to let customers cancel an order was huge. And I was just puzzled by that because that seemed like a fear response that I had never seen at Amazon. And I was right. fully, no, you, they trust us so much that giving them the opportunity to cancel their order is that's the cementing of the relationship. And I remember the board was actually having a board meeting and they wanted me to present to them on customer self-service. And we had the little controversy there and Patty Stonecipher was on the board and she was saying, you know, you got to listen to this. This is, you know, don't worry, let right. go forth. And I remember we had a bunch of cancellations when we first put that self-service up there. And there was just a little bit of, whoa. And then it was just more orders post that more than made up for that. Like the trust relationship, the bond between the customer and Amazon, really, it was great. So customer self-service was a great scaling opportunity and also like Colleen said, we had all the information about what they wanted to do and what they needed to be able to do. So we just mapped it over. 
I don't know if that launched in 98, but after I got there or before, I'm sure there were, were multiple versions of it. I remember when it sort of got it added to the top nav, you know, or, you know, for people that were coming back that had orders in process, you guys got some above the fold real estate to start anticipating questions. Maybe this is a redundant question, but I'm sure there were 80, 20 type questions. Where's my stuff? But then there are the longer tail questions like, you know, how did you get to, or how, I don't know if it was the two of you or somebody like, how did the organization sort of figure out these are the top 10 that we're going to do first. And then we're going to do these, the next ones to start empowering customers. We started tracking contacts per order and we were already industry-wise, I can't remember how we figured this out, but fairly low contacts per order because our self-service was going and the website was going well, but we definitely had a big load of customer service and we were only growing. And I remember we were sort of at a standstill. We'd gotten all of the big things. And then what was left was this long tail. This was actually the last thing I did at Amazon. So lots of things, outsourcing. I did all kinds of stuff in the middle. But then at the end, there was a cross-functional group. And we looked at some serious data mining. Like we went back and we fine-tooth combed customer service. And we basically had this giant list of what was still wrong. And they were all such small problems that they weren't getting attention. So we did this sort of bundling of problems where we said, here's this bundle of small problems that can be fixed, say, in the supply chain pipeline or on the website. And if you, team on the website, team in supply chain, solve this bundle, you will have contributed to profitability of Amazon of this chunk. And so it was a little bit of a gamification of solving those problems. And they just looked at this and they were like, oh, I can do this over the weekend. And there was just this great surge of we can do this. And my husband just finished up working in Amazon and he saw a presentation of the how contacts per order just plummeted. Like right after that project, it was just a crazy plummet. And they just sort of knocked down all the little things, the little ankle biting things that were going yeah. on. And it was a great exercise. Yeah, I, I do remember how big of a deal it was. And it was probably multiple iterations from, you know, Mary and Mohit and the site design team, because it was it was operations, obviously, what you were doing. But it was also you had to figure out how to put it in front of customers. And I remember another example of we would know that this person's order was delayed because <laughs> the book was not, you know what I mean? It was a, a remainder book or something, whatever. It was a book that wasn't going to ship to them on time. But rather than telling them four days, you know, as soon as we find out, they would find out when their promise was broken in five days. And it was things like that, like letting people know ahead of time. It's better to let them know the bad news ahead of time than have them wait five days and then get the bad news. Mary Mohit did lead that sort of like an understanding yeah. of customer promise. What were all the promises that we're making all along the way? How do we represent that at a data level? And then how does the machine notice that the promise has been not kept, like you say, ahead of time? And since the whole store is a piece of software, we did know. The intelligence was in there. We just weren't sort of asking the machine to figure it out. So you mentioned increasing productivity. So for startups, like what are the first metrics, when you think about the most basic of metrics that you probably started tracking and reporting on and and the ones that took things off a cliff in a good way there, like what were the key metrics that you thought about in those years? Was it contacts per order? Was it 
complaints? Well, those are two different questions. I mean, there, you asked a question about the most basic things that you start measuring, and then how do you get off the cliff? I mean, off the cliff is a mature company goal. At the very beginning, you're looking at really primitive things like context per order would be considered a sophisticated thing at the very beginning of a software company's life. What you're looking at, at is a grosser, sort of more gross anatomy, which is how many X's can a customer service person do in a day in a right. shift? Like how many emails can they answer? How many phone calls? How many can emails? They how many phone calls? How do? Yeah. How many? How many are deferred? How many email? How far? How, we were running over the holidays four days late in getting emails answered, which was incredibly painful. So we would do these round the clock shifts of just get so that on Christmas Eve there would be a bunch of us bleary eyed sitting in front of the computer answering them in real time, and for a, you know a few hours we would be completely caught up on emails, but we couldn't maintain it because it was a trap. But anyway, to get back to your yeah, so you're talking about overall volume, how many people does it take to handle it? And then you get into what are the most common things we're getting asked about and how do we fix that? Right. It's very gross in a young company's life for the first year or two. So you talk about the holidays. Actually, I wanted to ask because most of the stories of the holidays in those early days where we all got flown to distribution centers around the country. You know, I spent three years in Campbellsville, Kentucky in the warehouse. Was that same thing going on in customer service or were you more asked to handle that with hiring and training because you knew you would need the employees after Christmas too? First of all, we after I got there, we did every, all hands on deck over Christmas. Nobody takes any time off at Christmas. We also were sending people to the warehouse, which was nuts. So we finally had to make a call. Got to have customer service people. We were asking people who had been through customer service training, who worked elsewhere in the company to come in and get on the lines and take the easier questions. Once the company got bigger and we expanded into Europe, when I was running the London office, even though it sort of hurt the, the UK operations, London backed up in the email queues. Our guys got out of the UK email queues and jumped into the US email queues and helped knock them back down a little bit. Obviously, that's, you know, was expanded even more. Yeah. So when did the Maybe if this isn't an outshoot of that, but Amazon now has, I think it's called customer connection. I could be wrong about that, where most employees have a rotation through customer service. I don't know if it's at a certain management level or something. Was that formalized back when you two were there or, you know, we was tried. that something? We tried. And where did it come from? Did it come from Jeff? Did it like, where did that idea come from? It came from Jeff. I can't remember, but we, I trained David Risher yeah. when he yeah, got too. hired. I mean, I, I trained yeah. ev everybody. Yeah, David Risher was a senior vice president of marketing and product and came from Microsoft. And so you trained David on how to answer questions in the queue. Yes. I mean, he, yeah, I trained everybody, everybody that came in, I trained until a certain point where that just didn't scale and they needed to get to work. But it was great. And even when we had people come back in who had never been trained, software engineers over Christmas doing email because they couldn't, yeah. you know, we needed them in, in corporate, so they couldn't fly away. But they were terrible, but that was okay because they were good enough and they were very slow, but they would see the wrong things. So it was brilliant. There was always just this frenetic, you know, going back to their office and fixing things once they were in customer service first. And I, so I always tell Neil Roseman, I got another, I don't know his title, did all kinds of things, but I just remember in Campbellsville, I'd be there working and Neil would be over with engineers fixing things because they could see the problems in real time and fix them in a way that if they're sitting in Seattle, 
they're probably not thinking about it the same way because they're not, you know, touching it. So it was pretty awesome getting everybody into those areas where they didn't normally work with so that the problems become more real. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure they still do that customer service rotation. I'm not, I don't know what it's called, but I think it's customer connection. The other thing that's worth noting for your listeners, Dave, is that something that we did very intentionally at Amazon was we treated customer service as an incubator for jobs in, elsewhere in the company. And in fact, I had to stand you know, in the doorway with flaming swords to keep managers who shall remain nameless from coming in and poaching people too early. I said, I have to have them for at least six months because it takes two months to train them and two months for them to figure out what they're doing. And then I got two months of good productivity, but we populated the rest of the company with people from customer service. So people would show up in editorial and quality QA and everything else, knowing how the company worked, Yeah, which was a real advantage over people who came in up from, you know, somewhere else and had to learn how the company worked. I think it's one of Amazon's superpowers. I do. I think it's one of their superpowers in that it really hurts when you lose a great employee, but the company gets so much better because that great employee is in this other team and then they understand customer service and they share that with other people. So it does stink though when you lose that superstar performer. That's okay as long as you keep the pipeline full. It it was the right thing to do, no question. As we expanded from books to music, I always say that that seemed like a simpler expansion. Like, And I only say it because they're similar in form fact, the size and, you know, description and, but like, what was an example of a product line or an international expansion that was a real problem for customer service in particular? You know, like electronics where people started having, you know, help support issues on how it works or like, is there anything that jumps out at you that was a unanticipated problem? Well, I have one, this is even in books. So Jeff decided he wanted the earth's biggest bookstore. And so one night, He added every book known in the English language to our catalog and just sort of put no particular promise as to when we were going to be able to fulfill that. So that was the first time we had to adjust because, you know, we had absolutely no source for these things. Used bookstores had zero technology and pretty soon a ridiculous percentage of our orders, like the next day, the day after, were for out of print books. Would you have to go look for them then? We would go, oh my gosh, luckily, again, Seattle, tons of out of, Portland, I went down to Powell's. I mean, it was crazy. We had this fax machine. So the reason why that's interesting is because that was a whole different sourcing model, a very, very distributed sourcing model. So that rocked our world for that reason, but it was a really great learning experience dealing with very small vendors. So that was early marketplace sort of fingers into it. And then we also did some fun things in customer service that didn't really work out, but were good learning experiences. Auctions, customer service for auctions. You know, music was nothing compared to auctions. Allison Kirk, Allison Kirk used to work in CS. She still curses me over auctions. So she literally did in an email a couple of days ago. She's like, still can't talk to you about that. Yeah, that was, that was interesting. And that was hard because in that case, we went from being a pure retailer where we sold it, where you had to do customer service for both the seller and the buyer. And we thought about it ahead of time. Like I remember coming over to the building and working with Allison and Adam Peck and other people on that team, but we couldn't anticipate, like it was a new, totally new thing. And even like there was customer, a lot of customer service in the buying process, the auctioning process. So luckily Allison had experience in that. 
I believe she had worked at Sotheby's or something. I have one listener question, which is kind of fun. A guy named Seth Wissing, uh, he's married to an ex-Amazonian. He said, what's the most memorable online complaint you can recall receiving? I figured you'd have something, some story, or you or somebody on your team, anything that jumps out at you? For me, it was just so much more about categories of people. I mean, and also just the putting a certain category of people with a certain customer service rep. There was this guy named Nick who was just a love and he would get a grandma on the phone or just an older woman really needed to go to this guy. And you would hear these conversations in the background of just, oh, you know, it's almost like a flirtatious. I mean, people, people and books. I mean, those were really fun customer service interactions. Creepy right. sometimes, but fun because people are very attached to books and you know a lot about someone with their books and they get right. very excited. So yeah, I mean, we would go and I think we got a page out of an out of print book that had been missing a page that was crucial for someone we had, you know, so it's the books are, are more fun than almost anything else. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of us went there because we love books. You know, if you really think about it, like it's a neat company and Jeff was inspiring and mission, but the first thing we all loved was that we all were book lovers and then sort of grew from there. So when you think back and you, you both work at a startup, is Freight Terra a startup now? Like, but like, what would you think the customer service lessons are for fast growth startups? Like not startups that, you know, sort of not very many, but like the ones that are really taking off. If you step back and you were advising them on what to do and how to do it, what do you take from what you learned with Amazon and elsewhere and, you know, the big things? I'm working with a freighterra.com is a is a third party logistics company out of Canada and some of the problems they have are very amazonian in nature you know the sort of supply chain even though freight is a very different supply chain same supply chain issues relationship issues they have amazing people in customer service many in serbia wonderful people to meet they're absolutely doing it like amazon did they're hiring brilliant very good communicators, and they're feeding that information back into the machine. You know, I'm my husband is there as well. He's in software, and we're just very much like making sure their processes are good. He's on engineering excellence, and I'm on cause analysis of all this, like really right. showing them, you know, contacts per booking. And it's the same thing 20 years later. And, you know, yeah. they're really rolling with it is really, oh, we can feed this information in. And and as it scales, you just need that engine to be tighter. This company is a distributed company. They've never all worked together. They're all over the world. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Yeah. And Dave, I would say the two things I would advise anybody who's got a startup right now, particularly fast growth startup, is hire the brightest people you can for customer service and have a plan for what you're going to do with the data coming into that organization. Yeah. Consider every contact meaningful data. And that you want to get to the bottom of what that can do for your company to improve everything about the way your company operates. That's awesome. Well, I keep going a little over, so we'll uh, we'll end there. Thank you both so much. It's also just awesome to see you. That's part of the fun here is getting to talk to people I haven't seen in a long time. It's really fun to see you. This is awesome. great, Dave. Thank you. It's really interesting. Again, I joked with somebody earlier today. I said everything that was at Amazon before I got there was always there, you know, like I didn't know that there were three people when Jane got there and things like that. So it's it's really inspiring. And I, I talk to a lot of early stage startups now and they're wrestling with, this, you know, they wrestle with the same stuff. So I'm pretty sure the audience is gonna like it too. For the audience, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you'd like more details about what we discussed, 
There'll be a blog post for this. We'll link to Jane and Colleen's LinkedIn's and anything else they'd like. And if you want to get updates for future guests, subscribe at inventlikeanowner.com and uh, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. That's it for today. And remember, no sniveling. This episode is sponsored by Freighterra.com. Freighterra is building the low-efficient freight transport marketplace, linking B2B shippers to the most efficient carrier for each route in North America. Search and compare instant all-inclusive freight quotes and book shipments online 24-7 on Freighterra.com. That's F-R-E-I-G-H-T-E-R-A.com.